Great Sugar Booger, ladies and gentlemen, season four of Chewing the Gristle. We've got some magnificent guests queued up and ready to roll. Of course, Chewing the Gristle, it's guitar-oriented, but we talk about whatever. Can you dig it? And this glorious broadcast, if you will, is brought to us by our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, bringing you such a variety of glorious instruments, it'll tempt your mind, body, and soul. And our friends at Fishman Transducers, beautiful Andover, Massachusetts, providing all kinds of -of state-of-the-art accoutrement to take your acoustic instrument and fire it up to blast people's brains into submission. And of course, their pickups, especially those with the Gristletone moniker, are fantastic. Let's get to it, folks. Ladies and gentlemen, this week on Chewing the Gristle, we have the mighty Rhett Schull, guitar player extraordinaire, and YouTube Leviathan. All things social media, you want it, you say it, you got it, on this particular episode of Chewing the Doggone Gristle. Come on, y'all. Well, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we convene once again around the gristle table, the virtual gristle table, if you will, for another episode of Chewing the Gristle. I'm here with the mighty Rhett Shaw, ladies and gentlemen, guitar player extraordinaire, internet leviathan, (laughs) if you will. He's joining us from his lair in beautiful Atlanta, Georgia area. Uh, where we just hung out not too long ago. And thank you so much for the recent shout out on your glorious YouTube channel. How the hell are you? I'm I'm doing well. Thank you for that incredible intro. I don't think I've ever been called an internet leviathan before, but I mean, hell yeah. <laughs> I'll take it. Well, man. well, if the uh if the monster appendages fit, wear them, is what I say. <laughs> as they say, as they they have said for years and years, you know. Yes. Yeah, man. So what's happening down there? What's the latest? Oh, man, you know, just just the same old same, making YouTube videos and and trying to trying to finish the studio build. It's, you know, it's coming along very, very slowly. I'm not surely, just slowly. Uh so yeah, that that's been going on and um, you know, finished up. I, I did a, a little bit of shows this year back in back in the summer with with my band and um we've got i think uh, just two more for the rest of the year so that's it's actually been kind of nice to slow down a little bit on that front but um yeah that's what's been going on but when you're at home you're working your dog on tail off you know i was i was amazed i mean this is this is what you do so i shouldn't be amazed but the amount of reach you have is just it's insane in the membrane but you know a lot of people they don't realize the amount of work that goes behind creating the videos, building up that audience and keep it at just describe like a typical week for you in terms of what y'all do. to create Yeah. So do. we have at this point, it's myself. I have a production assistant, Chris, who's amazing. Uh, my wife, Tilly. And then we have uh, at this point, I basically call him my manager. I've got a guy named Steve who who works with me and Tim Pearson and a handful of other guys who's amazing. So basically, it's you know a typical work week is uh, five days. Well, I basically work every day. I mean, if we're honest, I don't really take any days off. Um, I, but I'm I'm not really one to relax. That's that's not my my style. So um, a, a work day could be like 
12 hours of filming and editing, or it could be two or three hours of just like working on Instagram or TikToks and stuff. It kind of varies from day to day. But yeah, generally we're working on... I try and do about two videos a week. Sometimes I hit that. Sometimes I don't. Um, and then working on video courses, you know, growing that side of the business and, and you know, working on some other stuff that will hopefully come to fruition next year. Uh, working on the studio build. I mean, it's it's like if you want to do this, it's actually not very different from being a working musician, which is you're kind of spinning 15 plates in the air at one time all the time, right? And you're just generating little income streams from each one of those uh, spinning treacherous plates. So, <laughs> indeed, I can dig the language you speak. You know, one of the things, I mean, without getting too geeky in terms of, you know, algorithms and this, that, and the next thing, but I, I find it interesting that kind of the sweet spot of, of people that get just an absolute ton of traffic on their YouTube channels, you know, whether it be in music or politics or whatever else, it's kind of like that 10 to 12 minute thing. Do you, mm -hmm. is that, is that a correct observation? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it sort of depends on the audience and it depends on the content that you're making. Um, you know, sometimes longer form stuff works better for me if it's more story driven. So like when I do the vlog thing of us on the road, you know, typically those videos are a little bit longer, 15, 20, 25 minutes generally. And I noticed that my retention on those are higher, meaning, like how long people are sticking around for the video because that those videos typically have a, a story element to them. There's like a beginning, middle and end. There's conflict and resolution. Sometimes, sometimes I miss that mark, but versus like a, a you know, the, the videos I've been doing recently, you know, I played five less Pauls to find the best one. That one's a little more like straightforward kind of gear review type thing. And, and those I think benefit from being a little bit more concise, you know? Right. I can dig it. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's always interesting to see how, how how things pan out with our friends, with the inner Google in general. And I also say that the other thing I just, that's so wild to me is the amount of interaction that that you do with your, with your I mean, I, I try to be, you know, if someone asks a question that's very specific, uh, I'll, I'll interact. Um, and I try to be as respectful and, you know, cause I, you know, I have a genuine appreciation of the fact that anyone gives a shit at all. Oh yeah. But, but by the same token, I'd like to remain married and I'd like, <laughs> and I'd same. like to actually do all the different things, you know? Right. Right. And, 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 and so I find that, that in order to really engage in the amount, but, but you as part of your thing, I mean, it's just part of what you do that you have to engage and, you know, and Rick Beato is another one. He's like always oh, engaging and so on and so forth. And I go, God bless him. But how do you do it? Um, wow. I, I don't. Well, yeah. Okay. That's if I ever find out, I'll let you know. It's one of those <laughs> things like it, it, it's on a daily basis. Like sometimes it's easier to stay on top of that kind of stuff. And sometimes you just you just don't have the emotional bandwidth for it. You know what I mean? Like it, it sort of ebbs and flows. And dude, you've, you've been on the internet. I mean, much longer than me or Rick or just about any other, anybody else in the, the YouTube guitar space that I know. It's like, you know, I started watching your stuff back in God, when I was in music school, when I was in AIM, like 2010, 2011, maybe is when I first became aware of you and, and everything you were doing back then. So it's like, I mean, it, it just, it can be difficult, uh, but at the same time, it's worth it because, I mean, I'm sure you feel this way. Like, this is kind of a dream job. Like, I get to sit and play with amps and guitars and cameras and 
pedals and stuff all day. And then I get to play with my band and play shows that I want to play and, you know, it's, and get to teach people and stuff. I mean, it, it, it's not all amazing. It's not all great all the time, but dude, I mean, I, I couldn't, couldn't be happier with this gig. Yes. yes. Oh, I, I understand. I understand the language of which you speak, you know, and I mean, there's, there's, uh, there's nary a day that I wake up and go, Oh God, I got to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And if you do, you probably step back and think like, wait a second, I got to do, why am I, why am I bitching about this? This is not like, and I think back to bad gigs that I've had to play or like the number of times that I've slept on the floor of a 15 passenger van driving through the night to get Mm -hmm. back to in time to go play another gig where I was going to make 75 bucks the next day, you know, like, I'm glad I'm not having to do that stuff anymore. Um, right. So, yeah. Absolutely. And, <laughs> you know, it's... it's uh, The internet's such a fascinating thing, just in general. I mean, I, th- I find that, <clears throat> for me, kind of where I gravitate going a lot of the times is... is you know, I don't know about you. I'm, 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 I'm a tad older than you were at. Okay. Really? But, uh, but just <laughs> what, 30, 34, 35. <laughs> <like> <laughs> a tad older. Back <laughs> in the day, you know, we'd, we'd have friends that were, um, that were like bootleg fanatics. Right. Uh-huh, right. And, and they would, and they would, they were involved in some kind of sophisticated network. At least it was sophisticated to me because it, you know, involved, you know, mailing away for things and so right. on and, and subscribing to strange publications where they would have, you know, different things in the back of the magazine where they would be like this coven, if you will, of fellow bootleggers that were that were sharing and buying all these different things. And I would have friends that would have like uh, entire tours. Uh, like I had a buddy of mine who's a total Zep fanatic and he had literally every tour from every year on cassette. And of course, in various different. And then he also had like the the demo sessions. Oh, check this out! This is when they were working on Black Dog. And then, like, how'd you get all this shit? And so, but now that the internet is out, it's like you can go on there for hours and find all of this shit. So I just go down the rabbit. Oh yeah. <laughs> so you know the thing that that kills me is that nowadays it's like all the information that is available. Uh, for someone, you know, who's, you know, back in the day, was like, God, I only wish it was available versus now it's like, everything's available. I wonder if you see that there's people that just don't even realize that this is the golden era of music research, learning and enjoying. Yes, yes. dude, a hundred percent. I, I, so it can be like drinking from a fire hose, right? The internet and YouTube in general. But for me, like, YouTube has been my primary source of media consumption since I was like, since, yeah, 2009 or 10. This is basically all I would watch. And, you know, I talk about this on my channel sometimes. I have ADHD. And so I tend to hyper focus. I get super in depth, interested in a, in a new subject. And then I just deep dive and try and learn everything I can about that subject in as little amount of time as possible. And for those days or weeks or months, it's like all I can think about, all I can talk about. And YouTube has, facilitated that and and in many ways it's just built up my uh my repertoire of useless knowledge and information but with the guitar thing my channel i kind of work off of the idea that i i'm making videos that i wish i could have watched when i was 14 or 15 years old and i was first figuring it out because the way i got into guitar was you know i i loved music growing up but no one in my family were musicians no one was musical 
Uh, nobody played anything. Nobody sang. We just people loved music in the house. And then my neighbor across the street, who was a year older, got a Squire Strat. And I remember like it was the first time I think I'd seen an electric guitar. And I must have been ten or eleven years old, maybe twelve, whatever. I started asking my parents, and they were like, "No, you're not going to play it. It's going to be the thing that sits in the corner, collects dust. You know, we're not spending the money. We're not going to do a thing." I kept asking, and finally that year for for Christmas, they came around. They bought me a. Uh, it wasn't even a Squire Strat. It was a Starcaster by Squire, uh-huh. but not not the cool vintage like Starcaster. It was a Strat that just had like a triangle headstock on it that you got oh, for yeah. like ninety nine bucks at Costco or whatever, you know. Um, but that's that was it. I got it for that year for Christmas, and I think I was twelve or thirteen, and I've played guitar basically every day since. And so, at that time in the early two thousands, this would have been oh two oh three oh four. There was no YouTube. You had like some tablature websites and some forums and stuff, but I wasn't hip really to that stuff. So I basically just learned by listening to songs and occasionally looking up the tab for something that I couldn't hear and couldn't right. figure out. So if I would have had your channel, your stuff, or Rick Beato, or Paul Davids, or Mary Spender, or any of any of my friends here in the, the YouTube community, I, th- I honestly think if I could have watched Rick Beato videos at... 12, 13 years old, I'd be a much better and more well-developed musician than I am now. Because like, I didn't even hear jazz or listen to jazz at all until I was in music school and I was 20, 21 years old. And uh, yeah, so I, I think that's the brilliant thing about what we're doing here, which is like, I'm learning. And then as I learn, I'm sharing that information to the audience in hopes that they will learn as well and get excited about the things that I'm excited about, you know? So yeah, 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 absolutely. It's a cool gig. Absolutely. You know, it's, there's uh every day I'm going to bed and I'm trying, I find stuff. To, <laughs> I'm on YouTube all the time, you know, and I yeah. know that there's, there's other places to go to, but. Uh, well, I think uh, the interesting thing about that, like YouTube versus TikTok, and this is something that people always talk about, like, you know, well, why not do TikTok? It's like, well, yeah, I mean, you can, but the thing is, I think the staying power of YouTube versus Instagram versus TikTok and certainly Facebook and things like that is I think across the board, for the most part, people know that YouTube is the platform where you go to learn and you go to be entertained. Like, oh, I need to fix the, you know, the the P trap plumbing under my sink. How do I right, do that? Right, Let me right, go right. to YouTube. Or Oh, you know, I'm looking at this new new truck. Let me let me look up some reviews of this thing. Let me go to YouTube. Or oh, you know, Casey Neistat started posting again. I want to see what he's doing in New York City. Go to YouTube. You know, so I think long term, that's really where the staying power of these platforms are, is because they're transactional. Like people are getting something from, you know, watching you and your band live stream every week. I get something out of that. Like, so I think that's where. Uh, it's kind of why YouTube is the best platform, in my opinion. It it uh, it certainly is. I, I nary a day goes by that I'm not perusing on the tube. Um, you know, just out of, kind of out of, in a, out of left field, but you know, talking about the your Les Paul quest the other day. You know what's what's interesting is I don't know what it is. I freaking love Les Pauls, even though yeah, I go, yeah. wow, you're a telly guy. It's like, well, actually, I'm I'm an equal opportunity offender to be Same. honest with you. But uh, yeah. Um, the Les Paul is just something. I mean, you know what's funny about it is if we if we if we think about the fact that the guitar was kind of a failure when it mm-hmm. came out, right? Yeah, yeah. 
And, uh, and then if it wasn't for, you know, Mike Bloomfield and Clapton, and then all of the people after that, I mean, let's be, I mean, yes, there were other people, certainly Freddie King and, sure. you know, about, you know, all these other different people were playing it before it, but really it was Bloomfield and Clapton and then all of their followers that did it. And as a result to this day, that iconography and all that kind of stuff has fueled just this fanaticism about this hunk of wood, but God damn it. I love them. <laughs> I do too, man. I do too. I, it's funny because I'm kind of the same way. I, I love most guitar designs, you know, to an extent there, there's some outliers that I just can't get down with, but like to me, and it took me a while to come around to the Les Paul. Um, it's really only been the last few years that I've connected with the Les Paul and really got the Les Paul thing. But I don't know what it is. I, but when I'm just sitting here playing, I reach for, well, especially now, the, the Les Paul that I got from Uncle Norm a couple weeks ago. That thing is a dead ringer. Either that or, or one of my Novos because my Novos are like my oh, those comfort are great zone. guitars as well. Yep. Yeah, those, those are just like my, my comfort zone. But the thing is the Les Paul... It just does what I want an electric guitar to do. That's the best way I can describe it. Like, right. when I hear an electric guitar in my head, it's more than likely some kind of Les Paul. Right. You know? And it's probably because of the way I grew up and who I listened to. And, and sure, you know, David Gilmore and Hendrix, and we can split the hairs on, on who played what. But when you really boil it down, I just, there's something about a PAF and a mahogany body with a slab of maple on top that uh, yes it's real hard to beat man well you know what's fascinating as a child of you know of the 80s if you will i mean i grew up uh, i started playing guitar i think in 1979 right it was 12 and um all the less pauls that were available to kind of my generation of folk were like the 70s and 80s less pauls and by this time and a lot of those Les Pauls had been already mutated with like hotter pickups. You know what yeah, I mean? So, yeah, yeah. so the Les Paul to us that we got our hands on were not the Les Pauls we were hearing on Live at the Fillmore. And, uh-huh. You know, the Blues Breakers record and Super Session and early Fleetwood Mac. They're like, what is that guitar? Because the one I'm playing is like a mud fest, you know? <laughs> right. And, and then, uh, you know, years went by and um, I remember... So I always want to, you know, I played 335s and I had a Les Paul for a while that I, that I bought, the, but it sounded too bright in comparison yeah. to my 335 that I, so I sold it. And, and then years later, I just was always hankering for a Les Paul. This, this friend of mine lent me this Les Paul and I plugged it into, uh, did this recording session and I plugged it into a, a Marshall Plexi. Uh, 100 watt that I took the, the outside two tubes up. So it was 50 yeah, watts, 50 but I had the larger, yeah. you know. And I was like, holy shit, this, this is that thing where yes. you just plug a Les Paul into a Marshall, you crank it up, you turn it down, you get this glassy, great clean yes. sound, you turn it up and bada bing, bada boom. And then a little while after that, when I started doing, you know, the Wildwood thing, I started realizing, well, now they're starting to make them like they did back in the day with these, this underwound pickup thing is a thing, right? Yes. That, yes. And so I really kind of came around to the fact that, you know, the guitars that they're making now, you're going to closer, you know, get an approximation of what they were actually like back in the day. Now, I've, yeah. I'm sure you've had an opportunity to play many old ones. And I have. Certainly, 
and 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 they're not all great, well, right? No, and that's that's what I was going to say. So with with Les Pauls, and and I think this is something unique to Gibson, somewhat, but primarily unique to Les Pauls, in my opinion. You have to find there's such variance in them. When when we went and bought this one, it was me and uh, Tim Pierce and I at at Norm's, and I played. There were several that we that didn't make the video because we just the video would have been half an hour long if I'd have filmed. I think we played like ten. We played ten Les Pauls, all custom shop, all expensive. <laughs> Some of them very, very ranging from new Murphy Labs to like the one I got to ninety nine R nine, you know, the kind of thing, and the variation. And those guitars was so wide. Every single one of them sounded different, felt different, played differently, gave you different ideas, led you down different musical paths, so to speak. So whenever I people love to shit on Gibson and shit on Les Pauls and stuff online, I see it all the time on on my channel. It's it's just kind of the popular thing to do now, and and not without warrant. I think you know some some of that stuff is is earned, right? But. The one thing I see that I don't agree with is when people are like, "Oh, I'm not a Les Paul guy." You know, at every Les Paul I've played is muddy or heavy or whatever. It's like, no, no, no. You haven't you haven't found your Les Paul. There is a Les Paul out there, I think, for just about everybody because they are so varied and so wide and so inconsistent, quite frankly. And right. <laughs> and and even even the high end custom shop ones like. You play 10, you're going to play 10 very different guitars. But in that, I think, is this, this beauty, which is like... I was talking to my, my assistant, Chris, about this the other day. It's like, the one that I landed on, you might have played, and it might have been your 10th place out of 10 guitars because what, you, what speaks to you is different than what speaks to me. So therein lies sort of the beauty. It's like, a, it's like every Les Paul is like a beautiful fingerprint. They're all unique and special in their own way. Um, yes. But... Yeah, honestly, man. Like, and even the old ones that I've played, I, I've played a handful of bursts, and um, I can confidently say, with the exception of two bursts that I've played, my R nine is better than many, many real fifty nines out there because they weren't all great, you know. Right, no doubt, no doubt. Well, the thing I like to say, and of course, you know, people on. On uh, on the internet, always I always use the analogy of well, you know, a good Les Paul is like a meaty sounding Telecaster. Like, well, yes. let's just play a Telecaster. I said, I said a meaty sounding yeah, and, Telecaster, and it's different. It's not just the pickups, man. It's like right, especially Fender versus Gibson. It's scale length. It's construction. Yes. Set neck versus bolt neck. It's neck angle. It's there's so yes. many there's so many little details that go into how a guitar feels, and then how the guitar feels informs what you play and how you play. It's it, people get so reductionist, reductionistic. Is that a word? That's a word. It is now. Don't it is on now. It. Yeah. The, about like, oh, well, you know, it's just the pickups. Pickups are the only thing that matters, you know. And this comes up a lot in like the whole tone wood debate, you know. It's like, well, it's just the pickups. It's like, dude, it's, it's a, a guitar more. is truly one of those things that is when it's a good guitar, it is greater than the sum of its parts, but it, it is a cumulative thing. Everything Absolutely. matters, you know. So absolutely. Well, you know, yeah. I always I always talk about too that it, it's no coincidence that the you know the first real iconic Les Paul guys were just right before that Telly guys. Bloomfield, yeah. yes, Clapton was playing a Telly in the Yardbirds, you know. Jeff Beck was using that Esquire and the Jimmy Page. Jimmy Page was yes. playing a you know, so it's 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 makes sense because the you know, of course, you know, you got 
two pickups, you got three sounds, all of them are great. But there's it's just that whole thing. Of course, back then, you know, there was no, you know, you got a telly in the wrong room of the fuzz face and you're going to be tuning in aliens, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so be able yeah, to yeah. have, you know, those humbuckers do their thing. But you yeah, know, the other well, thing too, and I've, I've talked about this a few times and I, you know, I, I'd love to just, just because it's, it's kind of controversial. I don't think ooh. it is, but you know, when, when people talk about the fact of, you know, regardless of uh, Eric Clapton's, you know, political or social observations, which we'll leave out of this. Sure. But it leads to people going, well, he's, oh, you know, I, I hate the term overrated because it's just asinine. Yeah. But but the whole idea is like, I want to just say, listen, folks, uh, if it wasn't for Eric Clapton, first of all, he's the first guy to take uh, Les Paul and plug it into a Marshall. And if right. you, you know, and, and then Clapton himself kind of denigrated. Well, all I did was like BB King licks. Like, no, you didn't. You did your own thing. Yeah. You know, and and that own thing was, you know, if the guy would have died in 1970 like Hendrix, he'd be every bit on the Mount uh, on the Mount yes. Rushmore of guitar players, which he is already. But right, uh, you know, I just find it so odd how people, you know, try to denigrate. But let's be honest, he's the guy. If it wasn't yeah. for Cream. Oh. There would there would have been no you know Jeff Beck group. There would have yes. been no Led Zeppelin. There would have been yes. no Black Sabbath. You yes. know what I mean? There would have been yes. no Allman Brothers. Yes. You know what I mean? Uh, yes. So I am a massive Cream fan. Uh, yes. Like one of my on my uh, proverbial Mount Rushmore of of bands, Cream is is definitely up there. And I do also have a soft spot for Clapton. You know, and again, political views and all that stuff aside, we're just going to separate that. I just, for me, my earliest, literally my earliest memory of music was the Clapton Unplugged record. My parents had it on cassette and it stayed in their car. And so when I, I remember being, I don't know, maybe three years old, two years old, whatever it was, and riding in the car in Charleston, South Carolina, and and hearing Layla and, and Rolling and Tumbling and all that stuff, that was my first memory of music. And so that probably had some kind of impact on me wanting to like gravitating towards guitar, you know, 10 years later or whatever. But um, so, yeah, I, I, and I've seen Clapton a bunch. My dad and I went to Crossroads 2019, and which was a huge kind of like father son moment for us. We had always wanted to go. We've watched all the DVDs. It was like a, just a thing for us. And so, but I agree. And, and the, I get, it's a little frustrating when, when people sit in sort of armchair quarterback, like famous guitar players and, it's the same kind of thing that happens. I mean, I, I don't know shit about art. You know, I'm not an art connoisseur, but like here, you go to an art museum and, and you see this sort of modern painting on the wall. You, you might hear someone say something like, well, shit, I could do that. It's just throwing paint on a canvas. It's like, yeah, but you didn't. Right. You didn't do that. You didn't have that idea. Right. Like you look at it now and you go, well, shit, I could do that. Like, yeah, but you didn't have that idea and you're not the one that threw the, the paint on that canvas in that particular way. And right. in that is why that person's art is on the wall and you're sitting here kind of shitting on it, you know? So, and I think that kind of thing happens a lot with, with famous players, not just Clapton, but just famous players a lot, sure. you know? Absolutely. There's a lot so. of, there's a lot of that. Of course, one of my favorite things to say lately is, you know, when you get people who are like, well, you know, real blues versus this, and he's not that about Clapton. And I, I just want to go say what you will about any of the above, but I'm sorry, you'll never be as cool or as badass as Eric Clapton in spring of 1968. Yeah. <laughs> You're damn right about that, man. I mean, my God, my God. And and again, cream, like just just go back to, because, you know, we can sit and debate the the eras of Clapton. You sure, know? exactly. And 
some I like more than others. We'll we'll leave it at that. Totes, but to me, yeah. cream is it's all there, man. It's epic. It's all there. It's everything you want out of uh, out of a power trio like that. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, the, those cream cream records are on on regular rotation for me, just in my oh. my daily life. I always go back to those. And you know what? I I will say as far as the bootleg is thing is concerned, there is a buffet of delicious cream morsels to be consumed late <laughs> in the YouTube night, engaging in sweet, sweet frolics as yeah. I go to sleep. People with lactose intolerance beware. It is a creamy buffet of... Exactly <laughs> correct. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. But, you know, and that leads to kind of, you know, it's it's an interesting thing. I, you know, there's always... To, to me, it's it's always been about connecting the dots you know what i mean it's like even when i was very very young i was kind of a you know a geek because my my brother was who was 14 years older than myself had all these records and that's how i got into it but then i'd start reading about even way before i played guitar i had this hendrix biography and i'm reading it and i'm hearing you know seeing these words you know muddy waters howlin wolf bb king albert king you know buddy guy who are these people right so to me it's always been about connecting the dots and and figuring out and there's always you know people say well you're into all this different styles I, to me it's all connected there's yeah. there is there is a labyrinth between all these different people because so and so play with so and so who listen to so and so and so and and to me it's uh, the internet really makes that even easier to do but I yeah. find it, it it interesting that so many people choose not to <laughs> yeah oh I know I know it, it's the thing that people sometimes seem to forget is at the end of the day, this is all music and this is all art. And it's about what makes you feel a certain way and, and what you enjoy. Like for instance, I enjoy listening to Cream as much as I enjoy listening to the latest Kendrick Lamar record, as mm -hmm. much as I enjoy listening to the Tarzan soundtrack that Tim Pierce played on. Right. Which, which by the way, uh, that soundtrack, if, if you haven't gone back and listened to the... Tarzan Disney soundtrack, mostly written and performed by uh, one Philip Collins. It's unreal. The the songwriting and the arranging and the production on those on those like Stranger Like Me, that song, they had no business going that hard for a Disney movie in 2001 or 2000, whatever year it was. And it it is amazing. So you know, I forget why I got on the Tarzan tangent, but um, well, what's, what's interesting is if, if you have kids of a certain age, trust me, you've heard the Tarzan. Soundtrack. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tarzan speaking, tangent's a good Athens band, by the way. I'm gonna write that down. <laughs> speaking as someone who's my youngest kid was the young Tarzan uh -huh. in a in a, a high school production of of the same, so I'm very familiar with all those. Two. Yeah, dude. Which, which are epic, no doubt. They're, they're amazing. They're amazing. Right. And uh, yeah, I was ten years old when Tarzan came out, and and that's been one of my my the funniest things about getting to know Tim Pierce and becoming friends with Tim is like, man, when I was I was like prime, I was target demo for that movie when that came out, and and yeah. for that whole year is like all I watched. And so I always Tim laughs, but I'm like, man, you you played guitar on like most of my childhood because when I was before I was developing my own music taste, we used to listen to the pop radio station here in Atlanta. It was called Star 94. I don't even think it's around anymore, but Star 94, you used to play all the, the top 40 stuff. And like, I remember when Iris by the Google Dolls dropped and, and that was all people were spinning and, and all this stuff. And looking back now, I didn't know who he was at the time, but it's like, shit, that was Tim on That's wild, most it? of that stuff, you know? 
So that's the other cool thing about YouTube is getting to know and and uh, meet people like you and and Tim. For me, at least, is getting to meet people like you guys and become friends. Where it's I've looked up to you as players and musicians for so long, and then now because we do this weird thing with cameras, we can uh, you know sit and hang out and get to know each other. I I love it. I think, I think it's, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, I agree. It's it's been the same for me. I mean, in terms of meeting so many different people that had it not been for this medium, it never would have happened because it was all about, well, how do you get in the same room with this person or that person? Or how does this person ever hear you play enough to go, hey, I like that guy, you know, hey, whatever. Because before then, I mean, there, you know, you're really at the behest of the gatekeepers. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's kind of what social media has done just in general across the the music industry now. Things like YouTube, well, TikTok now, especially. It's like, it's in many ways killing the gatekeepers. And for my own, you know, career is building this YouTube channel has completely changed my life because before this, I was, you know, doing the hired gun hustling thing in Atlanta and in Nashville. And that's a great, that's a great career path, but it is uh, very time intensive and very just, it takes a lot out of you. And, and I don't know how sustainable it is long term to be, you know, hustling for gigs. Right, you know, and and stuff. Now, I know plenty of players that do it, and they love it, and they're they're great at it. But you know, um, yeah, it's in many ways it is it is bringing the gatekeepers down, and it's it's handing people the opportunity. I guess it's the better way to say it is it's somewhat leveling the playing field. If you have some talent and you have the ability to teach, and you have the heart for teaching or the heart for making content or being creative or some combination of all these things, you can kind of like build a really good career for yourself now and not have to be reliant on the woes of another artist or exactly even worse, a record label or, <laughs> or any of these other things that I was dealing with for the last 10 years of my, my playing career. So I couldn't yeah. agree more. Absolutely. And the fact that you've done it at a young age is just going to make things even better. We interrupt this regularly scheduled gristle infested conversation. To give a special shout out to our friends at Fishman Transducers, makers of the Greg Koch Signature Fluence Gristle Tone Pickup Set. Can you dig that? And our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, bringing the heat in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. As you said, because you're your own boss, you know, you, uh-huh. you do all these different things. You're not beholden to... Uh, you know, as you said, an artist or a record company or a genre or um or a certain manufacturer. You know what I mean? You're yeah. you're you're free to do whatever you want to do, and and I I think that just across the board just makes well, first of all, it makes life a lot more tolerable, and and also you get a little bit more of an honest approach. I mean, you know, I know what you you've probably encountered. It's like when you get guys that or girls or whoever that are um that are predominantly side people in bands they have this very guarded approach because they're afraid to say anything that's going to offend anybody. Oh yeah. They have to be nice to everybody all the time. Cause you never know when this person is going to be a, well, yeah, he's kind of a, he's a little, oh, yeah. you know yeah, what I mean? Your, your entire livelihood is based on your social skills and whether or not you're a good hang, which right. is not a, not a bad thing. But like, you know, when, when I get asked this question, you know, I, I did the sideman thing enough to, to know kind of what works and, and what doesn't work. And in my opinion, from what I have seen and experienced, it's, you know, especially when you get to a town like Nashville, 
if you're working and you're getting gigs at a certain level, everyone can play, right? Mm -hmm. Sure, they're sure. better than others, whatever. But like, if you're in the game, if you're in the scene, everyone can play. It's not necessarily about your chops or, you know, what what arpeggios you know over to play, what changes and all that kind of stuff. What it really boils down to is, A, are you reliable? Can you show up on time? Do you know your material? You know, all that kind of stuff. But most importantly, are you the type of person that someone wants to spend 15 hours in a van with for right. every day for three weeks straight? You know, are you a good hang? And not a good hang for the sake of landing the gig because people will see right through that. You need to like genuinely build relationships and friendships sure. with these with these people. And then it, you get into a situation where a rising tide ra raises all ships. All my friends who I know who are on big gigs now, like the top level touring, you know, out there playing arenas every night all over the world, they all landed those gigs, most of them without auditions, but because someone in that artist's camp knew them, they were friends, a right. position opened up, and they got the call. And that's that's how it works. That's it. You know? yeah, absolutely. Whereas this is just a, it's just different. You know, you're you're self-employed. You you are your own business, which is also true of a hired gun musician too. Like you basically are your own entity your own business but it's uh it's a little bit different so well of course the big part of it is that you know if you're out with a major artist i mean i've had buddies who you know go off on these tours and some are even the musical directors and they're making you know a significant amount of dough for a few years and then if you're not constantly trying to angle okay well in x this is all going to end then yep. i'm going to try to make sure i get another gig and if you don't you go from making that amount of dough to making nothing. Yes. If, unless, unless you've, you know, planned accordingly, which is not exactly the greatest attribute of most artistic types is to plan accordingly. <laughs> yeah. It, it's interesting. The Nashville scene is definitely that way where like you can be on a gig and then, you know, the famous, uh, the famous stability of, of artists, you know, we'll say where, especially if they're on a label, artist does a new record, maybe it's a new direction and they want a new sound or they want a right. new look or they're, they're changing thing up, things up for their next tour. Or maybe their latest record didn't sell that well and ticket sales are soft and they need to kind of streamline something. Like there's so many variables that are completely out of your control that can affect your livelihood um, that... You know, that kind of that was part of the thing that made me nervous. And in about 2017, 2018, I started kind of looking around and thinking, like, okay, I, I want to YouTube wasn't the thing I planned on doing. I just started looking for like I need to do something that I own and that I have my name on and that I'm in control of because I love these artists and I love the music that I'm playing with and they're friends. But at the end of the day, from a strictly business perspective, like, you know, I don't this new producer. You know, I didn't play on the record. They had their own guy play on the record. So, and that's how I got this gig to begin with. I was the new guy that played on the record, and they liked me and brought me in. So, like, right. what if that happens again? You know, so um, that's that's what led to the making YouTube videos thing. But um, yeah, I mean, it's unless you get to the very very top echelon. Like, I've I've got a couple buddies that, like I said, are in that that where they're essentially just trading and bouncing back and forth. Exactly. Like, they come off of one gig and then go to another A list gig and go to another A list gig. And that's certainly possible, um, but you're talking about you know several dozen people out of a pool of tens oh, of thousands. Thousands, exactly, <laughs> yeah, exactly so, correct. You know, it's just just the lay of the land, I guess. Indeed, indeed. One of the things I wanted to 
talk to you about, we kind of touched base on it a little bit earlier when we mentioned, you know, tone woods and mm. all this kind of stuff and the, and the great deliberations uh, online, which I find endlessly humorous, but I, I you know, I'm not a, uh, <clears throat> an absolutist by any stretch of the imagination, but I right. will having, you know, one of the things I find interesting is, you know, as, as a result of uh, my unique position of playing literally thousands and thousands of guitars at Wildwood, you know, of all the best custom shop stuff, all the regular, you know, production line stuff from these manufacturers and so on and so forth. You send it, you, you tend to get tendencies of, of, of how things sound based on the woods, obviously the pickups, yeah. obviously the echelons of, um, you know, prices, price range, certainly Fender or Gibson. Obviously, they have all these different things. People are like, well, you know, my Mexican Strat is every bit as good as a custom yeah, yeah, shop yeah. and I'm like, <laughs> and all of that kind of stuff. And so, you know, I always like to say that, you know, there are genuine tendencies. You know, Ash is going to sound this way. Alder is going to sound this way. Uh, is that going to be 100% of the time? No, there's going to be there's going to be some variance. Is there going to be a custom shop guitar that's a dog versus a particular Mexican guitar that is absolutely unbelievably good and sounds better than? Yes, but that's the exception and not the rule. That, yes. that's, kind, that's kind of how I roll and just like to get your perspective on that. I love I love this, this topic so much. Um, so here's the thing. Does tone wood matter? My response is, does it matter to you? And that's all. That's it. Does it matter to you? Do you do you think that an Alder body strat sounds different than an Ash body strat? If you do, then great. That's part of what you are looking for when you find your strat, and that's part of what you will connect with. For me, weight of a guitar is a really big deal. I like mm -hmm. light guitars. Sure. I tend to believe that lighter guitars sound better. Is that actually true? I don't know. I haven't. I haven't built a, a study and done all these things to figure it out. But at the end of the day, I don't really care because I know that the guitars that I like and the guitars that I connect with generally tend to be lighter uh, than other guitars of the same make and model that are heavier. Sure. So you know, it it really comes down to you know, and and I'm kind of not helping this whole debate when I do these videos like the five strat videos where I edit and I take all five strats and I play little wing and I chop up the edit. So it's like you're hearing every single guitar back to back to back. And then it I get the flood of comments that are like, why would anyone spend over $1,000 for a guitar? If you spent $4,000 on a custom shop, you're an idiot. It doesn't sound any different than the Squire. It's like, okay, well, yes, I understand that if you're, if you are listening to and watching the shootout through your phone, which right. most people are like, yeah, the guitars don't actually sound that different. And even in a a good listening perspective, there the the differences in most of these guitars are subtle. But what it really comes down to is what feels the best to right. you and what you connect with. And that's what we were talking about earlier. It's like, you know, I tend to know what I like when it comes to guitars. Like you, I have played thousands and thousands of guitars, not as many as you have, obviously, but I've played enough to know what I like and what I don't like and what I look for in a guitar versus not. Right. And I just I definitely get annoyed at the the comments of the the absolutism of like, you know, because what what happens is guitars are expensive. Mm -hmm. 
when you save up money to buy whatever, a Mexican Ventera Strat or a custom shop Strat, whatever, you've worked hard, you've weighed your options, you've gone to the guitar store, you've, you've found your thing and you, you spent a lot of money, whether that is a $700 guitar or a $7,000 guitar, a lot of money. People have a bit of their identity tied up in what they play because right. they're, they're, um, they're, there's an emotional decision that happened there, an emotional connection that happened there. And they worked hard for that guitar. And so here comes, you know, Mr. Dumbass Millennial YouTuber talking about how like, well, I don't like the, the player series strat because I think it's kind of dead. And out of these five strats, this is my least favorite. And then there's someone that just spent, you know, money that they worked their ass off to save on the player series strat, of course they're going to be mad because in some way I'm attacking, they might feel that I'm attacking them, which is, which is not the case. And I think that's where a lot of this stuff comes from is people's identity is wrapped up in what they play right. and what they buy and what they listen to and, you know, their experience level and what they've played, you know, well, my Epiphone will smoke any custom shop Les Paul. It's like, okay, that's great, man. Like if you, you probably found a great Epiphone that, that you are stoked on and I'm, I'm super happy for you. But you also shouldn't then turn around and shit on the guy that went and spent $10,000 on an R, R9 Murphy lab. Right. Because exactly. to him, that's his thing or her thing. That's their like halo guitar, if you will. So yeah, lots of, lots of emotions are, are tied up in and all this kind of stuff, and it all flares up on the internet, you know, which is which is a famously emotionally stable and uh, consistent oh, yes, place to, to discourse with people. <laughs> so. Yeah, people people are always afraid to express what they really feel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> always, yeah, yeah, very timid. <laughs> I've you know people have you know uh, asked me like, oh, you know, what's the difference between you know uh, Mexican Strat versus an American Strat versus team built custom shop and you know and and uh, master built instrument yeah. and so on and so forth and I typically go into my well listen it's it's about quality of wood and quality of components and yeah. and and exclusivity of the amount of hands that get on the guitar I said that being said um, might you find, you know, as I was alluding to earlier, you might find a lesser expensive guitar that eclipses another one that's more expensive that you might have access to. Yeah. But the vast majority of the time, the higher you go up the, uh, the, the, the rate of currency, the, the superior playing, listening and looking and all that experience is going to be right. Uh, that being said, if you don't want to feel bad about, you know, not being able to afford a custom shop or a master build, then just don't play one. Then you won't yeah. know what you're missing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that being said, but you know, you mentioned something and, and I get it. And, and quite frankly, that's what helps us pay our bills is the, is the, um, making people excited about instruments, pedals, amps that are available for purchase. Obviously yeah. that's part of our routine. That being sure. said, to me, there's nothing more important than just the playing of the damn things. Mm-hmm. You know what? If I woke up and I only, I mean, for years, I'm sure you're the same way. For years, I had two guitars. Yeah. One one that I played and the spare. Yeah. And, same. and I had one amp and yes. then maybe a spare. Yeah. And then it was after a period of time where it's like I started to accumulate a little bit more. And then you start going. And then I started doing a bunch of sessions. Then I was like, shit, I hear something on the radio. I was like, 
what is that effect? I got to yeah. get one of those. Cause what mm-hmm. if I'm doing a session and they ask for that warbly thing? You know what I mean? Oh, I got to have it. So I'm constantly accumulating and accumulating and all that kind of stuff. But you know, it really just comes down to the playing. And I find that, and again, this is not to denigrate because there are some people that maybe they don't even want to play all that much. They just like the accessorizing. Yes. And you know what? That's okay. Yeah. There's nothing <laughs> wrong with that. Yeah. But at the same token, you know, don't be fighting online about all this stuff that it's just about, hey, you know what? Life is short. Enjoy yourself. Yeah. And uh don't be so goddamn judgy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You hear that internet? Take it from us. Chill out. Okay. <laughs> no, I completely agree, man. And again, like at the end of the way I see gear is these are just tools for expression. Okay. Right. And I love guitars. I, I I get emotionally invested in in these these instruments. Like it it's not like it's you're going down to Home Depot and buying a framing hammer, you know. It's it is right. more more than that. But at the end of the day, from my perspective, these things are tools for me to help get my creative vision down or someone else's creative vision down. Like that's that was my job as a guitarist for a long time as a hired gum was like I'm here to facilitate this artist's creative vision and their art either on a record or on a stage. And these tools are here to help me facilitate that for this person, right? And now with with YouTube it's changed. I'm now doing it for myself, which I actually enjoy much much more than working for somebody else but you know at the end of the day it's still the same thing like i have an idea i have something i want to say i have a, an emotion that i want to convey whatever it is in a video or in a song or in a track um i've started producing for for other artists right now and uh recently and and i'm co-writing and stuff so you know these artists come over and it's like okay we're going for this feel and this thing well i have the these tools to help me get this stuff you know, out of the speakers here on my desk for other people. So, you know, that's that's how I see it. And the the thing in terms of like the nuts and bolts of tone woods and pickups and and you know the different scales of stuff, it's like what do I connect with the most and what do I like playing the most? Because when I'm comfortable and when I like the way I sound, I play better and I give a better product for whatever the project is that we're working on. And that's where it matters. And that's like going back to the tone wood thing. It's like, dude, yeah. If if I'm working on a song, and I played my uh, my my Shabbat links, which is a just absolutely smoking killer strat on one track, and then on the second verse, I play the you know the Mexican Ventera strat, which is less than half the price. Are you going to hear the difference in the, in the track? No. <laughs> so, but what it comes down to is the person playing the guitar and the performance that they're able to give based off of the feel and the feedback that they're getting from the instrument and the amp and the the sound and the rig and everything. That's where it matters. And so that's what the Tonewood thing comes down to. Does it matter to you? If it matters to you, then yeah, that's the most important thing in the world is what Tonewood is in your guitar. If it doesn't matter to you, then who gives a shit? Go, you know, (laughs) it's going to be a lot easier for you to find a guitar that, that works for you. So kudos, but um. Yeah. To sit and argue on the gear page or on my comments section or whatever about, you know, the, the thing that particularly rubs me the wrong way is when people get mad about the amount of money that other people are spending 
on their passion or their hobby. Like, right. don't shit on someone else for how much money they spent on their thing. Like, that's right. quite frankly none of your business to sit there and say anybody that spends this much on this thing is an idiot, dude. <laughs> Well, that, people like to do that with the relicking things, specifically oh, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. with a lot of the Wildwood videos. People are like, whoever buys these guitars is an idiot. And what's funny is, is, is that my my wife will, will you know, if I, I get the guitars coming here, I'm actually going to start going out there again to, nice. to do the videos, which is going to be nice. Uh, but since the beginning of COVID, I've been, they send me the guitars, I do them here. And often I'll get, you know, relics. I got one right here, this delicious little Wildwood Ooh. 10. Yeah, 61 strat, which is glorious, which is heavily distressed. And my wife will look at him and she's like, God, why, why would you do that? And I was like, honey, for, for one thing, you know, if I wanted to buy a real 61 strat that looked and felt like that, it would be tens of thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm. So I can get this guitar that gives me that feeling of playing an inspiration of playing an old in instrument without, I mean, it's still expensive, but it, it's not as expensive. And yeah. plus, Having played a gajillion of these goddamn things, yep. I can say with impunity that Relic guitars sound different from one that is an NOS or whatever yes. you want to say. And people will argue this, and I'm like, you can argue all you want, but I've played enough of them where I know there's a difference. And that's yes. not to say that, again, it's always going to be better, but there's a difference. And if you like that feel and that sound and that ring and all that kind of stuff, then fine. But don't shit on somebody because they right. bought one of these relics. And Dude, you know what I mean? I feel the same way. The thing about the relic, it, for me, is it comes down to the feel. I like the way a relic guitar or a vintage guitar feels because yes. it feels worn in. It feels broken in. It feels, to me, open and inviting. And you can, it's, it, it's ready for you to do whatever you will with that instrument. And not to say that that doesn't happen with new instruments, but like, so on my wall right now, I've got one of the new American vintage reissue to stress. I love, I love those guitars. They're the great guitars, but it's a, a nitro finish, which is, which is nice. I like that. Yep. But the, the back of the neck is super sticky yeah. And, yeah. and I have sweaty hands. Right. So, so it, th that guitar is more difficult for me to play than my Shabbat links, which is, um, for all intents and purposes, pretty close to that guitar, but it's relict. And the back of the neck is worn in. The the nitro is much, much thinner on the body. Uh, it's worn in all the right places. So where you're actually touching the guitar, you're feeling wood against your right. skin. Sure, exactly. Right, like those little things matter. Well, again, they matter to me. Right. And so right, because right. they matter to me, that's why I like a relic guitar. The aesthetic thing is, in my mind, kind of neither here nor there. You know, it's it is what it is. You know, I it's it really comes down to the feel and the playability and what that guitar is inspiring me to do. And when I'm comfortable and I feel comfortable with an instrument, I sound better. When I sound better, I I play better. So right. there you go. I'm not an idiot for buying a, a 1999 relic. R9 that has, right. you know, chips and paint missing and all that kind of stuff because it feels awesome. Right. So, well, the bottom line is people just want to be right. They want to be right in their, in their mind. I thought it was funny that when you posted that snippet on, uh, on Instagram uh, and it was, you know, me doing that lick and you're, you're trying to figure out, he's doing this thing here and it's, you know, it's an Albert King lick. I think it really, yeah. but these guys, Oh, that's Albert King. Uh, and, and yeah. I, and I know both of those guys and they're great players and they're good guys, but, 
to me, it's yeah. just like, yes, okay, it's all right. You know, and, and that's why I said to you, I was like, you know what? I think it's going to be all right. Yeah, I think, that was I think one we're all going to be okay. In the in the actual video, in the edit, I referenced that. And, and in the edit, you know, I basically got cut for time, right? I just sure. was, to make the, the video flow better, I was like, you know, I, just, I cut the, the Albert King reference thing out. Because... I, I I don't know. I just didn't think it would matter. And then as soon as I started, I posted on Instagram, started getting the comments. I was like, oh God, here we go. It's here like, we go. Oh, Rhett oh, see, doesn't see? know Albert hey. King. He Yeah, it's like, he's never heard Albert King. He didn't know that was an Albert King lick. He thinks that's a Greg Cock lick. What a, what a fucking idiot. Oh my God, so cringy or whatever. It wasn't that bad. But it was, um, it just was funny that it's like, yeah, I like the way you played that lick. And I was inspired by, yes, I know, I know the lineage of that lick. I know right. where it originates from. But the point I was trying to make was your approach to using that lick in that context, in that song, at that moment, you were improvising. I thought it was super cool. I thought it was technically impressive because you're playing tens on that guitar, right? On that. Oh, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus Christ, man. I mean, that's, <laughs> it's impressive. So yeah, that was well, the point. <laughs> that was the point of the video was to like, you know, I, I make these videos now that I love making because I've been following all these players in this in these video series I make, like Madison Cunningham, for example. You know, I've been following them for years. And yeah, it's like I want, you know, a lot of these players like yourself are already very well known, but there's still people out there that don't know your playing or Madison's oh, playing or Jake Workman or, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, Jack Pearson or whatever. So it's like right. part of what I want to do with this platform that I've built now is like highlight people that, I'm inspired by and I think are really cool and I think will inspire other players, especially younger players who get turned on to your stuff or Jack Pearson or Madison Cunningham or Jake Workman, you know. Um, and again, that's kind of the mission statement of of the channel. If I could have seen you play or Tim Pierce play or Madison Cunningham play when I was 13 years old, 14 years old, it would have blown my mind out of my skull. So, Yeah. Well, I really appreciate the shout out. Let me tell you, because I have many people going, you know, I discovered you through Rhett's show and that it's it's a beautiful thing. You know, it's all about um, because it's it's a strange I, I find myself discovering people that I'm ashamed mm. that I didn't know about until now. You know what oh, I mean? Yeah. It's just like, how did I I mean, this is right under my nose. This is right in my wheelhouse. How did I not see this? And yeah. it's just it's just the way it is. You know what I mean? But it's isn't that just, so fun, though? Like. Like my my production assistant Chris, he uh, he just graduated with a, a jazz guitar degree from from a school here in Atlanta. And Chris is an amazing player. Um, I featured on my on my channel. Basically, anytime I need any kind of jazz chops played, I just hand my assistant the guitar and turn the camera on him because he's he's great. But there's so many times where we're sitting up here and we're working on a video, and I'm like, I need to reference something or pull something up. And he's like, Oh, well, have you heard this person? It's like. No, and I pull it up, and he's he's turning me on to super hip shit that I haven't heard of, and I'm like, wait, how have I not heard right. of any of this stuff? But then it's it's cool. It's like you've unlocked this new level that you get to get to deep dive on. You know, a couple of years ago, Josh Scott from JHS turned me on to Madison Cunningham and and her stuff. Who, if anybody's watching or listening, has not checked out Madison Cunningham's music. She is a genius. She's a genius writer singer and guitar player her guitar playing i saw her in atlanta a few weeks ago hence the shirt uh yeah. dude i if <laughs> you it's hard to describe what she can do musically 
uh, in a live context with a great band behind her. She is, I think she will go down as one of the greatest musicians ever. You know, give awesome. her 20 years and and she's she's just going to be huge. So, and um, yeah. Well, my, thanks for that because I'm not familiar with her. So I'll be checking that out post haste. Oh. Dude, yeah, jump on YouTube. Just look up some Madison Cunningham videos. You're going to be texting me in an hour. Like, holy shit, man. What, <laughs> what's going on here? <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Well, listen, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. I know it was kind of a it was kind of a quick turnaround, but I really appreciate it. It was a blast talking with you. I hope to hang out with you again when we're down in Hotlanta. Thanks for coming out to that gig. We feasted at Fox's Barbecue. Oh that was delightful. It was great what meeting a- your dad. Yep. Yep. Thanks for having me, man. It was, uh, it was honestly getting, again, being, getting to know you and becoming friends with you is, is a huge honor, uh, and a privilege. It is, it is not lost on me. So I appreciate you having me on. I appreciate the time. And, um, yeah, next time you come, we'll, we'll just do a barbecue tour. Actually just plan a whole day. When you come to Atlanta next plan a day and we'll just eat our way across town. Excellent. (laughs) Let's just do that. (laughs) <laughs> that would actually be a good video. That would be a great video. Of us feasting, feasting across Atlanta. Oh my God. Let's let's angle for a food network show. Me and you will get picked up. We'll be like diners, drive-ins, and dives, uh, but it'll be the two of us just eating barbecue. In every which, city. What, what, whatever happened to that man versus food guy? I got worried about that guy and now yeah. you don't see him anywhere. I think I heard and this is, you know, this may not be true, but from what I heard, he had to give up the show because his from his doctor apparently or somebody was like uh you need yeah, to this stop can't, this can't go on <laughs> this is not sustainable <laughs> <laughs> see but the thing is if there's two of us we can split it up right yeah we'll split it so yeah. it won't be as as bad and, and we're both uh tall tall you know relatively large gentlemen we can handle our our weight here so uh yes. let's do it i've been using my noom program so it's just a matter of how much we can consume a day right okay so we'll, we'll do the math on it yeah. And the math will be part of the video. See, folks, <laughs> this is how we're this is how we're working. This is how we're justifying this great feast. Yeah, we're about to eat six pounds of brisket, but we didn't eat <laughs> anything yesterday. So we've got exactly. room on our, our caloric budget here to make this happen. It's all about balance. <laughs> all right, Red, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, man. See you. Right, have a good one. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for tuning in, ladies and gentlemen. We absolutely appreciate you caring and checking out these podcasts. We certainly have a good time doing them. Again, it's brought to you by our friends at Wildwood Guitars in Louisville, Colorado. Don't be afraid to go to wildwoodguitars.com. Check out what they have going on. I actually go there every night and visit their new arrivals page. It's kind of a kind of an illness, really. And, of course, our friends at Fishman Transducers, fishman.com, making all the greatest accoutrements for your stringed instruments. Stay tuned for more. Greg Koch here. Thanks so much for tuning in.